Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. We're going to do the first of our uh, two-part show tonight uh, discussing college football and really recapping what we had over the weekend. And Joe, the first thing that needs to be discussed is obviously uh, Georgia's epic failure at home against the Gamecocks and probably the biggest upset that I can think of in recent college football history. Yeah, definitely did. It was shocking to see South Carolina hang around in this game. It was also shocking for Blankenship to miss a field goal. I was thinking a couple weeks ago that if I had picked any field goal kicker to take a big kick for me in a close game, he would probably be the guy this year in 2019. So shocking to see how that transpired. But Georgia this season, coming in, I really just did not think they had enough weapons on offense, with the exception of DeAndre Swift. Their wide receivers are just not as talented. And so I thought it would be tough all season on Jake Crumb, especially when they take on uh, top-tier defenses. Did not expect maybe uh, those holes to be magnified against a team like South Carolina. I mean, I think that's what's surprising is that these flaws, you know, showed up against Will Muschamp's defense. Uh, It was definitely an ugly game. It always seems like when South Carolina under Muschamp wins a game, it's always kind of ugly football. And uh, South Carolina even missed a potential game-winning field goal before they finally got in in the second overtime. Just an all-around ugly game and will definitely leave a really bad taste in the mouths of a lot of Georgia fans. Well, Joe, I think that's a good point. And what was very different from this upset versus other ones is generally when you see a team that's not ranked beat a number three team in America, you feel like they played an incredible game and played spotless football, mistake-free football. That, that's not what happened in this game. Both teams seem to play pretty poorly. And Georgia just played a little bit worse than South Carolina. And, I mean, they both had opportunities to win the game. Uh, South Carolina had a game-winning field goal attempt of about 55 yards, or I think it was 49 yards, and their kicker missed it by a country mile. And then you started having the the, the coaching decisions come in. And, Joe, I, I guess that Kirby Smart didn't coach as good of a game as Will Muschamp, but let's be honest, both of them coached very bad games. And Muschamp was just lucky enough to get the win. Um, you know, Kirby Smart, I thought that he yet again showed that in big games, he tends to make the wrong decision. Uh, you were talking about Blankenship. Uh, Blankenship had missed his first kick of the season, which was, I think, about a 50-yarder before the first half had ended. But he had a chance with, uh, you know, two seconds left to let Blankenship try and kick a 60-yarder. And, I mean, I know Georgia's seen him make kicks of over 55 this year, and Kirby Smart, instead of letting Blankenship, who really has been pretty clutch, try and kick the game winner from 60 at home, he instead tried to do a Hail Mary, which, of course, didn't work. And so that was the first of the bad coaching decisions. And, of course, the next one was on Will Muschamp, when after Georgia had thrown an interception, instead on third and two, when they're running the ball pretty effectively against Georgia, he just basically runs in the middle of the pile and has his running back fall down to kick a field goal. 
which I've never understood that. I always think that when you when you got the momentum, don't try and you know win a game in a way that's a little bit more difficult than you know than just scoring the touchdown. I think you always add too much pressure on a kicker when you don't have to, and I think coaches make that mistake a lot. Muschamp did that there, and you know then of course uh, the guy misses the field goal in the first overtime for South Carolina before that. And so I thought that was even more like, you know, the, the guy ultimately misses a field goal after he basically stopped being aggressive on offense so that he could kick the field goal, which meant added pressure to him. And luckily enough, he made the field goal the next overtime and Blankenship missed it. But I thought that was a really poor coaching move by Muschamp to not play for the touchdown when you're a four-touchdown underdog and instead put it on a kicker who had already missed a game winner. So – uh, Muschamp's wearing his glasses now, and I guess appears somewhat smarter. But both him and Kirby coached a bad game, and Muschamp's lucky that he got this W, and maybe this will save his job for the season. Yeah, this will probably save his job more than likely, especially with their starting quarterback out. You know, they had Valinsky and had another guy that played yesterday. Going back to your point, though, about not attempting the 60 yard field goal at the end of regulation. I think that's a really good point. It always frustrates me when I see coaches in football uh, taking me going into overtime or just concede time because when you lose a game of that magnitude, in retrospect, you would do anything to have any opportunity to win the game. So why throw those chances away prematurely? It never made any sense to me. The only rationale that I can fathom is that Kirby Smart was thinking back to the kick six didn't want a situation like that to happen. But aside from that, the play calling on both sides was definitely very um, questionable throughout the game. And it was just a situation where South Carolina was just lucky enough to pull it out. And now the monumental effect uh, or impact of the Georgia loss is that uh, this really hurts on derails their season because they have zero margin for error now. They lost to video for South Carolina team. They have to run the table. They have to win, I think, convincingly in big games. And uh, maybe even then, they still don't make the playoff because there could potentially be four or five undefeated teams at the end of the season. Yeah, Joe, I, mean, I, I think you leave this game uh, thinking that Georgia was vastly overrated, that there might be the fourth or fifth best team in the SEC right now. Uh, playing the way they did Saturday, they would have lost Alabama, LSU, Florida, and Auburn. And maybe some other teams like Texas A&M. And so the question is, what is Georgia? They've got a good run. They've got a great running back. They've got a quarterback who played his worst game ever on Saturday, but generally it's pretty uh, consistent. And they've got a good defense. But the problem is, if you bottle up, deep, uh, if you bottle up DeAndre Swift, they don't have much of a passing attack because, as you mentioned, uh, there are no weapons at receiver right now. I think George Pickens is a, a very good freshman, but he's not like a Justin Ross-level freshman that really makes a big difference. And Georgia is kind of without playmakers at the wide receiver position. Yeah, it really makes a difference. I like Demetrius Robertson and his potential. I mean, he had a touchdown catch late to tie the game uh, towards the end of regulation. He's a former five-star recruit in Cal, but just for whatever reason, 
he's never been a number one option in his four years of college. He's always been more of a second-tier guy. Well, Joe, uh, the lasting impression that I'll leave from this game is that Georgia lost this game because of karma. Because I don't know how it didn't happen, but Georgia had a player not get flagged and not kicked out of the game when he hit Holinsky three seconds after he threw the ball and put his helmet right on his knee. Did you see that play? Yeah, that was uh, definitely, uh, you know, one that Georgia kind of got a gift there. And so I guess it is a vindication later on. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I guess the, the one saving grace you can feel is if you're a Georgia fan is that you obviously still have some kind of credos in the public voting because for some reason you were still number nine and ahead of uh, ahead of Auburn and some other teams like Oregon that have one loss but two much better teams than you had. So I guess there's still a path if Georgia were to win out and beat Auburn and Florida and some variation of uh, Alabama, LSU, or Auburn in the SEC championship game. But that just seems highly unlikely right now. Yeah. Well, let's talk about one of those teams that could have play, they could play in the SEC championship game if uh, Georgia somehow to get it together, and that's LSU. Uh, LSU had a great win over Florida. I thought that was a really fascinating game. And um, really kind of back and forth, almost Big 12-like game for a long time. And then at the very end, LSU made some really good plays, and Kyle Trask finally finally played like a backup quarterback at the end of that game. Missed some open guys and didn't really uh, make the play when it mattered. And what Burrow did, just like he's shown throughout the season, is he hit the passes when he was under pressure at the big time of the game, just like he did against Texas. And LSU looks like a very solid football team right now. And I think what's even more worrisome if you're someone uh, like me who's an Auburn fan and has to play LSU or anyone else that has LSU remaining on the schedule, Ole Miss, Alabama, is that it looks like LSU is starting to run the ball pretty well too because Lair had a good game, had over 100 yards, and they also had another freshman come in and score a touchdown. And so it looks like LSU starting to get a little bit of that balance back on offense too. Yeah, they have been once now offensively, and Joe Burrow was just super efficient throwing the football last night in Baton Rouge. I think his final statistical line was 21 of 24 for 290-plus yards, three touchdowns, zero turnovers. And on the flip side, I was impressed with the fact that Florida was able to score 28 points in Death Valley. Don't remember many teams in my lifetime pulling that feet off against LSU at night. Uh, so they were definitely, um, you know, didn't show up um, phased at all or intimidated by the atmosphere. Dan Mullen had the team ready to go despite all the injuries that they are, you know, dealing with on both sides of the ball. But at the end of the day, LSU is definitely the superior team. It's just stunning that Ed Wardron is a. Uh, it is. And uh, another thing, we were talking about poor coaching. I thought that Ed Orgeron vastly outcoached Dan Mullen in that game. And I kind of think about Dan Mullen in a lot of ways the same way I do about Kirby Smart. I questioned Dan Mullen a lot in big games, too, with his play calling. Because I thought he he overthought a lot of things and cost Florida in that game, too. Especially kind of at the end when they had that third and, and goal opportunity. And he ran it up the middle with, with Trask and 
and took out, you know, Emory Jones, who's been running the ball really well. And I just thought that, uh, you know, especially on that, that goofy play, too, where they, they tried to do kind of the pitch out, toss into the end zone, that Mullen kind of got a little too fancy with his play calls and went away from what got him down the field. And we've seen that before when he when he has leads like he did Mississippi State against Alabama in that game where he went off conservative. He just tends to, to not coach his best in, in big games when a lot's expected of him. And I think he did it again this time. And I thought Orgeron coached a great game. He was aggressive the whole time. He let Burrow win the game for him. And he's been going for it on fourth downs. And I really like the level of – respect and confidence that uh that we has in his team and his aggressiveness as a play caller right now yeah yeah definitely i mean they're clicking at all cylinders and they just have the confidence about them it's just business-like and right now i mean i think that uh burrow should be someone that goes to new york and should be heavily considered for the hospital you even heard him talked about a whole lot but i think he's definitely someone that should be invited to new york and if they are to beat Auburn and Alabama and go to SEC Championship game and win, maybe he's the guy who should win it. Yeah, I mean, right now I'm looking at it. He, uh, him, uh, Burrow, uh, Tua, and uh, Jonathan Taylor are probably my top three right now. That's right. And I, I was happy to see they ranked LSU number two because I thought they deserved to be number two right now uh, after Alabama. And maybe, I mean, I would probably say right now I'd rank them ahead of Alabama if I was an AP voter, but. I think mean, they're definitely worthy right now to be in the playoff until somebody unseats them. And uh, speaking of uh, other Heisman contenders, everyone's been talking about how amazing Jalen Hurts has been playing all season. He looked, you know, so good. Put up numbers that were even greater than what Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray did to an extent. But Joe, I thought he looked like bad Jalen in that game against Texas, and it reminded me of the way he looked at the end of the 2017 season when he got absolutely blitzed by Auburn and uh, when he played against Georgia and had Georgia up by 13 points going into halftime because Alabama couldn't do anything. Um, he threw a really bad interception. He fumbled it when he should have known someone was behind him and didn't cover it up very well. And I thought Jalen Hurts looked just like the way he did at the end of his Alabama career and didn't really like he had progressed that much. I guess it's somewhat a okay defense. Yeah, he took a step back on Saturday against Texas. I mean, granted, this is their toughest test of the regular season. They could very well see them again in the Big 12 championship game in December. But I think that Jalen Hurts just was not efficient throwing the football. He had a lot of incompletions, had another interception. Um, he didn't run the ball well. I think he had another game of over 130 rushing yards. Really, the difference in the game is that Oklahoma had C.D. Lamb, uh, and they also had Kennedy Brooks, who also had a good game on the ground. But C.D. Lamb specifically, I mean, he had three receiving touchdowns. He's one of the most dynamic, electrifying receivers in the country. And you have a player like that, you don't even have to throw it, you know, up to him that actor. You just get it in his uh, range. C.D. Lamb's going to catch the ball and make a play, do something acrobatic, get in the end zone. Without him, I mean, Jalen Hurts, his numbers don't look that good at all when you, uh, you know, look back at the stat sheet. So I think that Oklahoma needs to uh, do some uh, self-evaluation after this game. 
to make some improvements with Hurts. He cannot progress if they won't get each shot to win a championship. No, I mean, if they were to play a team right now that has the defense, uh, the level of someone like Auburn, Georgia, someone like that, or Wisconsin, they would do nothing with the way that Hurts played in that game. Um, yeah. One thing I think you can take as a positive as an Oklahoma fan from that game is that your defense looked better than it's looked since the early Bob Stoop days. Because, I mean, that was a, they looked great in that game. They had nine sacks of Sam Ellinger, which I never would have thought would have been possible. Uh, they held Texas to three points in the first half. And I really thought that Alex Grinch coached a very good game from the defensive side of the ball. And Oklahoma, for the first time, has a serviceable defense. And that's a big step up from where they were last year. Yeah, I mean, that's a compelling point because Sam Ellinger's always been known as a run player first quarterback. Uh, we know he against Georgia last year in the Sugar Bowl. And I know he had two rushing touchdowns, but on 23 carries, when you add in the sack yardage, he finished with negative rushing yards. I mean, negative 11 rushing yards. So, great performance by uh, Oklahoma. So, Joe, there was a lot of disappointment over the weekend. Obviously, big disappointment if you were a Georgia fan. Uh, if you're a Texas fan, your season's over now. Texas is not back. They're not going to go to the national championship. But there's another fan base out there that probably might be even more disappointed in some ways than both of those fan bases. And that's the other Bulldogs in the SEC, Mississippi State. Uh, they went out and they lost to, outside of Vanderbilt, the worst team in the SEC right now. Lost to them 20-10, to 10, had a completely anemic offensive showing. And right now, for the second year in a row, Moorhead is uh, not living up to expectations. And looks like this might be a team that might not even make a bowl game right now. Yeah, I mean, you expect them to be Arkansas, to have a chance to beat Ole Miss. But it's going to be tough sliding to get to six wins if you look at the rest of their schedule. And what is, I think, so puzzling about their performance throughout the season is that Joe Moorhead is an offensive coach. I mean, that's his pedigree coming in state. He helped uh, develop uh, Trace McSorley into one of the better quarterbacks in the Big Ten over the last few years. But for whatever reason, he's come to the SEC, and his offensive strategy is just not working at all. And uh, I think they hit rock bottom on Saturday at Tennessee. Uh, coming into the season, I really thought that they had they could potentially have one of their better passing offenses in school history. Um, I thought that um, you know the transfer they brought in from Penn State that he was going to just light up you know this uh, school passing records all season. He came out of the game the first two weeks and looked really good, but uh, for whatever reason, after dealing with uh, some injuries, Tommy Stevens has been the same player. They tried, you know, the freshman quarterback, but uh, Garrett Schaefer is just not, the Schrader is just not um, a passing quarterback yet at this point in his career. He's more of a run guy. So the offense is just kind of discombobulated, in my opinion, and not really uh, effective at all. Yeah, no, I mean, it, they, they've been switching between two different ideologies. And neither one's working that good. And it's so strange because I thought that uh, Mississippi State was going to have a very good passing offense too because, I mean, everything I had heard is that Tommy Stevens just about beat out Trace McSorley for that job. And apparently it was a difficult decision to even go with Trace. And I saw Trace at the Senior Bowl. I watched him all times at Penn State. Very good quarterback. Um, 
But speaking of weird quarterback controversies, what do you think as a very serious Ole Miss fan about the incredibly bad coaching by Matt Luke in that game against Missouri and his decision to play Matt Corral over a quarterback uh, in John Reese Plumley, who'd been leading a pretty prolific rushing offense and it uh, put up over 100 yards rushing himself against Alabama, led an attack that had over 200 yards rushing against Alabama, beat Vanderbilt by 20 plus points, which doesn't sound that great for most people, but for Ole Miss, who's had a weird history of struggling against Vanderbilt, that was a really solid win. And so I just didn't understand not starting Plumley and then doing this weird quarterback switch in and out thing that Matt Luke did. It was one of the most awful coaching performances I think I've ever seen. And I think it cost them the game against Missouri. Yeah, it really caused the offense to stall. You just cannot develop any rhythm switching guys in and out. The only justification that I might be able to consider is that Plumley had fumbled you know, a couple times in the game. So maybe he uh, put Corral in for that reason. But I really just don't get it because you look at the track record this season. When Corral started against Memphis, the offense only scored, I think, nine points. Because two points, I believe, was a safety. Mm. And then um, you look at how they performed against uh, California until Plumlee came to the game and almost engineered a dramatic comeback victory. And Plumlee led the offense on Saturday night against Missouri, a Missouri team that has actually a pretty good defense, to um, some early scoring drives. And Plumlee is already, he's a true freshman, one of the most exciting uh, players in the SEC. He looks like the type of guy that could be, you know, the, um, not, not necessarily... You know, the next Johnny Manziel may play similar to that, you know, just an exciting player that uh, draws people's attention and drives uh, defensive coordinators crazy. So to take him out of the game just does not make any sense at all. And you're right. It definitely uh, cost Ole Miss. Well, Joe, another thing that I didn't understand, too, is that Ole Miss has a better defense this year than they've had the last couple of years, but it's still not a great defense. And one thing that I like about Plumlee is that he leads a you know a kind of offense that can take up a lot of clock. They can give your defense a rest. He runs the ball. Jerry and Ely runs the ball. Scotty Phillips runs the ball. And you take up some time, get some first downs, work some clock, give your defense a rest. But if you put Matt Corral out there and you throw three incomplete passes, it's not going to help your help your defense either. And so I know that a lot of people will say, well, Ole Miss's defense gave up 38 points. But when your offense isn't out there for very long, that causes a big strain on your defense. And so that's how that decision affects both sides of the ball. And, I mean, to me, it was just that simple. At the beginning of the game, Plumlee was in on the drive that they scored a touchdown, but they put Corral in. And all of a sudden, the first two drives that Plumlee's back in, not till the end of the third quarter, by the way, Ole Miss puts up two more touchdowns and gets back in the game. But it was too little too late. And so – if he had started that whole game, I think that it was either a one-possession game or Ole Miss wins the game outright. But we didn't get to see that because they kept switching them in and out. And, I mean, it, it, I, I haven't seen anything, like I said, like that since Gus Malzahn when uh, Auburn played Clemson in 2016 and had five different quarterbacks play in the game. Because, I mean, he was really switching out uh, Plumley and Corral from play to play, which, you're right, gets no offensive rhythm together. 
and you made the point before the show that Matt Luke should not be concerned about Matt Corral transferring. If he wants to transfer, that's fine. That's understandable. Because he and Plumlee are both the same classification, both freshmen. And if Plumlee's as good as it appears that he could be, Corral would never you know, overtake him at any point. Mm-hmm. So I just don't understand. Just play the better player. All right, Jack. Um, uh, you know, with that being said, let's look at, for our locker room talk, what are some of the worst coaching jobs ever in SEC football? And obviously, we're telling you that we think Matt Luke's one of them. Uh, because it was already the other night. As always, our locker room talk is brought to you by our fine sponsors, uh, Beach Ball Properties, ran by my good friends Hunter and Ginger Harrelson. If you're looking for a uh, vacation spot down at Orange Beach or Gulf Shores, interesting weather right now. feels a lot better. The water might actually uh, be under 70, which would be kind of fun. Good time outside, a lot of breeze. Give uh, Hunter and Ginger a call for your next vacation. And then our other sponsor, uh, Jensen Computer Technologies, located right outside of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Call Ryan and Yerogale Jensen for all of your computer needs. All right, Joe, so obviously we're putting uh, Matt Luke's debacle against Missouri the other night with benching a very good quarterback to put in a quarterback who's done nothing for the offense, uh, pretty high on the list of bad coaching decisions in the SEC. Uh, I, I don't know if I've ever seen one worse than the first Auburn game that I ever took Kayla to, the 2016 Auburn-Clemson game, where Gus Malzahn really was switching out quarterbacks from place to play and I think he had four different quarterbacks actually take snaps. And Joe was so bad that there was a play where there were actually four quarterbacks on the field on the exact same play. And it, too, cost Auburn the game because their defense played inspired effort and completely shut down Deshaun Watson in that game. But their offense was so anemic, couldn't hold on to the ball for a long time, that they ended up losing a game when their defense held Clemson to less than 17 points. Right, and I remember at the end of that game, Auburn still, I believe, had a hell very attempt with a chance to win the closing seconds. So that shows you how they were right there against the eventual national championship team, and uh, Deshaun Watson. So yeah, that definitely you know belongs on the list. What do you have for yours, first one, Jeff? The one that I chose, Dan, is the 2014 clash between Ole Miss and LSU in Baton Rouge. College game day was there. Ole Miss seven and zero, ranked number three in the country. I think LSU was having a, a five and two season. Maybe they were ranked number twenty five because it's LSU, and that was our last year of law school. So you and I vividly remember what the scene was like in Oxford. Everybody was thinking that this was the year on this is finally going to win the SEC West, potentially. We had all witnessed uh, the goalposts coming down a few weeks earlier with all this overtaking Alabama and Oxford on the dramatic sequest Wilson interception in closing seconds. So I really thought that all this that year had um, a psychological, you know, uh, distinction uh, that was different from some of their other teams. They had a mojo about them where they could go into a hostile environment like College Station or Baton Rouge and perform very well. And for whatever reason, Hugh Freeze called one of the worst uh, offensive games that I've seen in Ole Miss history because it was so frustrating that they were too conservative. There were drives where they were able to get into the 
old, but they had to either punt or try to attempt field goals. And it was just ugly, ugly football. And LSU ended up winning 10-7. to And what drove me even more crazy was that at the end of the game, Hugh Freeze claimed that he called a conservative game because his defense was playing so well. He didn't want to take any chances. And I thought to myself, if you had just taken some chances, you know, your defense would have been rewarded for their great effort. And because of that, we saw what happened. You know, Bo Wallace throws the interception late. They don't kick the field goal. You know, this season was direct. Yeah, Joe, I remember that. I mean, with all those great receivers, with uh, with Treadwell, and you know, with everyone else they had, they were conservative, didn't try to throw the ball down the field, and it was weird. They really did just kind of give that game uh, to LSU. Um, you know, Joe. Speaking of LSU, I think I got to put one on the list, and that, of course, is uh, Les Miles' famous uh, zero second game against Auburn. I think the, the game that called, ultimately calls him his job is the last game at LSU was one that I remember I watched in New Orleans. Uh, Auburn beat LSU in the same year, 2016, uh, because Les Miles at the end of the game couldn't get a snap off, and actually they threw a touchdown pass on the plate that had zero seconds, and his clock management skills finally ended up costing him the job because that last drive, uh, Danny Etling, I think he took about 20 seconds to snap it each time, and they really would have had plenty of time to score a touchdown had they had a little bit more authority and quicker movement. But, of course, Les Miles was taking way too long to get everything snapped. Yeah, he's had a lot of situations like that in the past. That's right. And uh, speaking of which, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe.